Hello, and welcome to the Active Travel podcast. I'm Rachel Aldred, I'm the director of the Active Travel Academy, and in this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Katya Leyendecker and Dr. Emma Mbarbati about their two PhD research projects. PhDs involve somebody focusing on a topic for at least three years and doing some really in-depth, innovative research. So I wanted the Active Travel podcast to also capture some of this and to translate it into a form that hopefully people will be able to engage with over around half an hour of conversation with the person who did the PhD. So Katya's PhD focuses on cycling advocacy and activism and transport planning, and Emma's focuses on commuting behaviour and what, what are called travel scripts. So the first half talks to Katya and the second half to Emma about their different but complementary PhDs, both using these really exciting and in-depth qualitative methods. I hope you enjoy it. Very excited to have with me today Katya Leyendecker, who um, completed her PhD last year in 2019, uh, which is on cycling advocacy, uh, activism and policy. And so, hello, Katya, really pleased that you're with us. Uh, I'm certainly the one who was pleased, Rachel. Um, great, it's great to be here. Brilliant. So I've got some fairly general questions and we'll kind of drill down into bits of the, the thesis as we go. But I wonder if we could just start by because you um, had maybe a slightly unconventional path to the PhD as well, a lot of people do. Um, so I'm just wondering when you, you started the PhD um, before you started the PhD, so maybe four or five years ago, maybe even longer, when you were thinking about doing a PhD, what, what motivated you? How did you, was it a sudden decision or something you'd been thinking about for a while? I started thinking about, um, let's call it going back to university um, when I was still working as, a, um, as an engineer. So, you know, I, I came out of the, the kind of the technical, you know, I'm a... Um, I'm a civil engineer by training, uh, so it's all about the applied natural sciences, um, you know, big data sets. Um, and I worked in water engineering, which certainly had to do with big data sets and, um, you know, analyzing them. And uh, it was num numbers and figures um, was my life. Um, apart from, of course, you know, engineers get themselves into um, these careers of uh, team leaders, um, project managers, program managers, and you know that was part of what I did as well. Um, but I had started to be a bit or felt a bit um, uncertain um, about how the future would pan out. Um, there, it felt as if there was a almost like a bit of a dead end. Um, it was interesting to be in engineering to start with. I think I'm, I'm someone who always likes the excitement of something new you know I like starting new things as well as uh, and I may, my, might add that here um, as well as finishing them as well so it's not just you know that I, I'm one of these kind of starting off projects and uh, finishing nothing kind of person um, and I, I kind of looked ahead in engineering and uh, couldn't really see where I was going and um, was 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 slightly kind of started to be disillusioned and um it was kind of the time of my life where i also felt you know being a woman in engineering is, is hard work um you know there's a lot of inequalities in that and you know often quite difficult to talk about them as well because if, if the field is not prepared to um 
to listen and and to you know receive maybe a bit of criticism and deal with it uh, flexibly um, you know and welcomingly, and that's kind of what it felt to me at the time. And uh, so I started looking at what's going to be my next step. And you know, bearing in mind, you know, I, I was sort of let's say thirty seven, thirty eight at the time that I started to think like that. And um, yeah, so there was always the open mind to, well, you know, I've got a master's degree, could go back to university, do another master's degree. PhD sounds great, actually, now that I think about it. And um, and as I've always found in my life anyways, that, you know, when, when you start to think about something and then talk about it as well, sooner or later some doors open. And, and that's happened to me here that um, I got together with uh, Seraphim Alvanides, um, who works at Northumbria University and is also interested in geography and you know the sociology of cycling and um, especially the big data streams of it. And uh, <laughs> and we, we we started to think about you know how um, how we could get me into university. <laughs> Um, and that was that was our little project for a couple of years, and uh, eventually it, uh, it it turned out to be the case that I, uh, you know, had written a PhD proposal, I applied for it, interviewed for it, and um, it was supposed to be about infrastructure, women, and space and politics, and um, and that's where I started. You know, I was forty two at the time. I was just almost on my forty uh, second birthday that I started my, my PhD. <laughs> jungle journey and um yeah and and uh, that, that's how I got into it so it sort of you know it developed there over the years um and and became more and more possible and then really concrete in the end and that was exciting and scary mm, wow yeah and the, the sort of the specific idea for the PhD was something presumably very linked to some of the advocacy and activism that you were doing yourself as well as to some extent your engineering the, the engineering experience definitely um i uh realized uh, of course later on that you know my mind was quite heavily shaped by my engineering training but i i also when i started the phd um it, it came about because I was interested in, in cycle activism. So that nothing to do, you know, in fact, with water engineering at all. Nothing with engineering and not much with water either. And, um, yeah, that was, a, that, that, was a, a, that was a starting point for that. Uh, you know, that in 2010, I, I was really started to be frustrated and disillusioned with uh, Newcastle Newcastle Council and the politics that happened there around transport. Um, and I had started to form a campaign, um, well, um, co-started a campaign, co-founded a campaign with Claire Prosper in, in Newcastle. So two of us got together. I had, I had um, set up a petition had garnered 800 signatures, handed it over to the council. That's all kind of you know, the, the, the history to that. Um, before my kind of disillusionment started, but nothing is happening here. You know, it's, everything's so clear. You know, we need to do something. We need to talk. We need to devise ways of, uh, you know, getting out of this and, you know, allocating space to cycling and by all means walking. Um, and yeah, it, it was the activism that uh, got me 
into university because it was the activism that that Seraphim and I um, collaborated over. You know that uh, that that was the the point where where it came together. That motivated you to sort of study it, to study the activism and the the, the advocacy, and to, to learn more about it through the PhD. Definitely, but that's that's uh, almost you know two years into the PhD because I got into the the whole thing you know with. Uh, engineering mindset, technical figures, numbers, um, and uh, let's create some data sets and let's analyze them. And it took me two years um, to figure out, um, and it's, it's not, you know, through uh, the lack of helping from others, you know, from, from university folks. It took me, you know, for me personally to understand uh, these two years um, to um, to see that, it's the activism that really interests me in it. It's the activism, how it clashes with the with the politics for transport um, that interests me, as well as, um, you know, being a woman campaigner interested me in it as well, because we had all sorts of, uh, you know, talks about, is, is it just me being a woman in this, you know, that makes it so difficult or, you know, where does it all come from? Um and uh, yeah, so, you know, yet again, another not so straightforward uh, pathway, you know, it, it started off with me doing a lot of reading, um, talking to people, the the term ethnography started to come up. And um, I started to, you know, something for an engineer, ethnography, I mean, that's wholly sitting in sociology, had nothing to do with me. And it took ages um, you know, if, if I look at it, uh, you know, through really rather critical eyes. But it took these kind of two years for me to have the confidence um, to understand ethnographic methods, feminist methods, um, critical theory methods, as well as, you know, going one step beyond, um, which is using not just ethnography, but autoethnography. Because, you know, that was yet another final step that I that I took. And I have to say, I mean, Rosie Parnell, my, my supervisor, she, she was just, you know, so helpful and um, so patient. I mean, Seraphim was patient as well um, with this, this journey that, that I underwent. And, and Rosie really supported me in autoethnography and not just supported me, but, you know, made me understand, you know, the, the important aspects of it, what I should focus on, um, sort of slashed the the kind of the pathway free a little bit for me so that I could start to look ahead. And um, so, you know, whilst I say it's my own journey, in, in, in the end, um, there were so many people sitting on the sidelines, kind of cheering me along and really helping me. And, you know, kind of the, the research community, as well as the, um, the activists. Um, and uh, that really... So many different aspects coming together that uh, made the PhD so um, multitudinous somehow as well. You know, there's quite a few aspects in it that needed to be brought together. Yes, I mean, and that's one of the things that I found most fascinating about it was this intense mix of qualitative methods. And I, I've dabbled a little bit with ethnography, but nothing like the intensity of what, what you've done. So I wondered if you could describe, you know, for the, particularly for the podcast listeners who may not be familiar with this kind of methods, what you specifically did in, in this. <sighs> and now just pearls of sweat start, uh, you know, forming, <laughs> forming on my head. Um Yes. So, you know, there's, there, there's various strands to what I did. And um, it had to do with that um, 
I had to sort of hoover up, I felt, uh, you know, quite a few years of campaigning. So it was at a certain time, but there was, you know, let's say 2017 that I started to get really serious about data collection. And um, luckily, and it had nothing to do with my PhD as such in the beginning, but I had written, uh, started writing a, a blog, um, you know, just for my own gratification in many ways, uh, you know, and for my thought development and started writing that in 2015. So I had two years worth of um, blogs, blog posts, you know, that I could analyze, uh, you know, turned out to be, you know, over 100,000 words, um, you know, really interesting analysis. It was a PhD in itself, you know, when you just look at the, 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 the sheer number of words. But, you know, started looking at, you know, very, very um, let's say, you know, conventional methods of, um, you know, what, what are the themes in here? What, what did I talk about? How can I group these in, into themes and subsets of it? And um, so that was really lucky, you know, that had that data set there. But that still didn't um, cover anything before 2015 as such. Uh, and I started the campaigning um, with my uh, co-conspirators in, in Newcastle, you know, particularly Claire and then later on Sally uh, in Newcastle in 2010. So I had to find a method I, I thought of, uh, you know, getting uh, getting that down somewhere, you know, g- gathering that and um, as well as analyzing it. What What is it that um, happened there? So I devised a, um, a method of uh, a sort of uh, retrospective video diary, I called it, going back um, through old um, emails. And that was really lucky that I'm, um, I kept emails, um, the campaigning emails, and um, that helped to, uh, yeah, to, to find a method of uh, condensing them and analyzing them. And the condensing happened by sitting down through 2017 every day to record three minutes worth of um, a summary that happened in a week's worth of campaigning, you know, to, to get to grips with these kind of five, six, seven years. Um, and, you know, by recording a week's worth um, every day for three minutes for a year, I, I got to these whatever turned out to be, you know, 17 hours um, Talk, me talking about campaigning and activism. Um, and I could listen to that again and then sift through, and that was really interesting, sift through the, the kind of the emotional aspect that happened in it. What's, what were the things that really riled me up um, or elated me? Or um, what was it that really then alongside that happened so, you know, to kind of sift through, and, I, you know, I, I don't want to talk down the emotions here at all. I think it's, it's really important um, for what I was trying to do, you know, to, 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 to use those as kind of guideposts to um, the, the key things that, that happened, at least to my mind. And, yes, I, I went through that process, and as, as you can imagine, you know, kind of when I said about the blog post, 100,000 words to read through, that was 18 hours to listen through, you know, not just once, but maybe second time, third time. Sometimes just letting things play in the background and, you know, be alerted to, oh, you seem to be, um, you know, something is really happening here. Um, that, that, that seems to, 
you know, get a hold of you and uh, go back, um, listen to it again. What is it that you're trying to say here? And then doing something similar again. What are the themes here? What what, what happened here? What what, what is what is the nubs, you know, what, what's, the, what's the key aspects? And, um, and yeah, so, you know, I started to have the blog posts and the themes in there, um, the video diary and the themes that, you know, started to grow up through that, as well as a timeline of, of campaigning events, you know, that the, the video diary was very helpful for that as well. And then, um, yeah, so alongside that, or maybe even before that, I had started to look at policy for, for Newcastle um, transport policies. And uh, in my research, it became clear to me that um, I do speak German as well as English. So it would be good if I, um, and I have to say, Seraphim was, was really helpful. He said, you speak German, you have to use that somehow. You know, not everyone can go to Germany and speak to Germans in their own language. I mean, that's, that's an asset, do it. And um, I had um, campaigning friends in uh, Bremen, uh, which is a city in, in North Germany, uh, you know, the, the big German city with um, 25% um, of all trip cycles. So, you know, a, a real cycle city, especially from a UK perspective. And I had started to, um, you know, look at Bremen a little bit, then started to look at the policy there um, and started a policy comparison. And it ended up, um, it wasn't specifically devised to be as such, but it ended up in the PhD and it also ended up as a as a book chapter in in a book edited by uh, Cox and Coglin, uh, the politics of um, cycling infrastructure. Mm. So that's another thing that you know, kind of puzzle piece that fell into place um, by just being interested in background analysis. I thought, um, which policy analysis was to me uh, that. That in itself, um, though it's not a primary, you know, produced data set, it's data that's already out there in, in the domain, public domain, that, um, you know, that ended up as, as another chapter. So another um, data stream that was analyzed. Um, and then, yeah, and then I talked to women campaigners um, in Germany as well as in the UK, specifically, of course, in Newcastle as, as well as um, Bremen. But yeah, talked to eight women campaigners. Um, with, uh, you know, long, extensive interviews, again, analyzed for themes and, you know, understanding of what, what is it that happens here. And also talk to um, Newcastle as well as Bremen top decision makers, um, mm -hmm. a, a politician in each city and um, a, a, a transport uh, officer. Senior, senior transport officer in, in each city as well. And that, I think, concludes uh, the data in my PhD. So, you know, yeah, it came together from, from various sources. Yes, I mean, it's, it's an incredible amount of data. And um, did, did you get the idea of the retrospective video diary from somewhere else? Or does, was, there, was there other research that had influenced you on that? It 
It didn't as such. Very loosely, though. I mean, you know, I, I grabbed myself a couple of uh, Sage publications. You know, Sage is quite good um, publisher for methods, methodology, and I had started reading around there. You know, what what methods are, what methodologies are. Um, again, always with the background of you know, is, is there some sort of what's the feminist aspect in this? And um, it came through that. But as such, you know, when I then started looking, I, 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 it, it came to me. Let, let's just put it like that a bit uh, metaphysically. It came to me that this would be for what I was trying to do, namely, you know, get get this um, retrospectively understood what happened, um, as well as kind of having some sort of raw bits in there, you know, raw kind of feelings and emotions not being lost and not just being a technical analysis of it. It it seemed to be just um, what was the right thing to do. And it kind of, it was cobbled together as such, um, helpful for and very useful for what I was trying to do. But when I started looking at, um, you know, how to describe what I was doing, I couldn't really find anything. I mean, you know, there's there's blogs and, you know, um, and academics have written about blogs and how, how blogs are really useful. And academics have written about diaries and how they are useful. And there might well be video diaries, but might not be about this kind of retrospective diary. So there was always aspects of it which which weren't quite there. Um, so it was different pieces put together, which... Um, I still think it's, it's quite good, you know, for what I was um, trying to achieve. Uh, and it, it kind of did the job for that. So it was the right, uh, and that's kind of, you know, the one feminist aspect in it. Don't be constrained. Uh, you know, know what you're trying to do. Not where you're trying to end up. You know, that's always a different thing. You know, you, um, but know what you're trying to do. And and then, um, you know, the method is supposed to help you along with that, you know, rather than there's this, um, very um, set set of uh, methods, and you know that's the only toolbox you've got. No um, methods are also mix and match. As long as you can um, explain what you've done, and um, and and it's open and transparent. Um, you know, as always, where you are coming from as a researcher as well, and what you're trying to achieve with it, then mix and match is uh, is definitely a good way to go. Mm -hmm. That sounds like excellent advice to me. <laughs> so what would you say the sort of central puzzle that you were solving with all this data was? What's the central question that kept you going? Yeah, I started campaigning, and as I said, with a very technical mindset. And I had um, not quite made a leap into sociology. Let's, let's call it like that. Um, you know, I hadn't quite understood that um, there's people theorizing about, you know, how society works, how activism works, how politics mm. work, um, you know, that there's a field that's called political sciences and, um, or, you know, about any kind of psychosocial aspects of it. And it was that, that I had to kind of work through. And the PhD as such is a, is a working through that process of coming from from a rational mindset and mm. ending up in a in a in a wider uh, frame of mind that's uh, you know taking the social and the political 
um, and the psychological by all means um, into account as well. So that's that's kind of you know the in, in short the journey that I underwent. But the original question was why is nothing happening? I, um, you know, we started campaigning to me, um, as well as to, to my fellow campaigners, things seemed to be logical, why things needed to change. Um, yes, we thought it's not going to be easy for politicians, but we wanted to work together with them, you know, to, um, you know, get, get new narratives, um, to find out what we can say and how it could be said. Um, you know, by no means we thought it was going to be easy. To, to absolutely, you know, uh, you know, put the Newcastle transport system into an upheaval. You know, of course, that's what, that was not going to be easy. And it was about space. So it was heavily political and politicized. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, my question was, uh, so five years in, you know, starting with the campaigning, five, six, seven years after, why is it still hard? You know, why could we not mm-hmm. talk to the politicians um, the way that felt um, kind of sort of conducive to, you know, in, inducing change. And uh, that, that was, you know, my big puzzle question, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the big question mark that, that I was trying to, um, to find an answer to. Why is nothing changed? Why is change mm-hmm. so extremely slow when something rational is um is underpinning all this and and could be used to frame new ways um to find new narratives mm. and and so from the research you did how would you answer that question now yeah as you can imagine you know with all these different aspects coming together which you know a lot of them were personal um and i underwent change the, the whole, um, you know, the data sets um, were, you know, dif- different to each other and needed to be woven together somehow. Um, so, you know, I, I then started to look at the themes and, you know, how, how they related to each other, you know, the themes of the blog post, um, the themes um, from the video diary, as well as the women activists interviews and then the decision makers i left the decision uh, first of all started with myself um that so what's what's interested me here what what is it that um uh, didn't didn't get answered you know what what's where i'm still what's what is it that i'm grappling with and i devised the framework out of that which i then um looked at again once I had analyzed the women interviews and what themes came out of that and, um, you know, came up with a, with a framework of there is um, automobility and, you know, anything that, that we do uh, with cycling always, because it is, you know, hegemonic, um, sits in, in, in the shadow, really, you know, of automobility. So you can't start talking about the bike without having uh, an understanding of automobility and, and how that system, socio-technical system, operates. And uh, I, I, in my thesis, I then split it in the framework in, into two aspects, um, the social automobility, the one that we actually do, you know, we, we just enacted uh, we have the roads, um, we have the transport systems, um, we've got our social norms, um, 
we all play our role within within it, um, often totally unbeknownst to ourselves, and um, we're sort of actors in it, um, with often not having much um, space to act. Um, you know, we, we we do our thing, do the things that uh, you know the space allocation, for example, tells us, or you know that um, happens all around us. And uh, yeah, and then there's institutional automobility, and um, you know that's in, in such, as such not a new aspect, but it's um, the the technical and political aspect of it. Namely, how did we end up with those roads? Okay, we've got those roads now, and we want to change them. How could we change them? And um, you know, as a, that's me speaking as an activist here as well. So you know, we in Newcastle knew that the way to change that we have to go through the system. We have to talk uh, to decision makers and policy makers. Um, we have to talk to officers, um, and we have to talk to politicians. Um, and that's that's the way to uh, to change it, um, or there's a chance to change it that way. Um, so it's the institutional automobility that uh, you know keeps us where we are um, as every one individual person um, acting within the system. And um, the question then was um, and became interesting because you know I've interviewed the uh, decision makers. Um, I then had my framework and wanted to appraise it against what these decision makers actually say. Um, and uh, it, it then started to be clearer that there is a framework here that these women activists, and um, and I don't think it's a massively gendered particularly uh, uh, framework, that, um, you know, cycle way, activists for cycleways, you know, for allocating space for cycling, have set up, you know, that's the framework, and um, what is the difference to, if any, uh, to these decision makers and, and what they make out of it? Now, I didn't go to them with a framework. Uh, I went to them asking, um, asking them about uh, you know, their roles, um, what their responsibilities are, um, what they feel about transport and um, change and how they as a politician or as an officer perhaps would uh, bring about and that started to be really interesting um, for me because I um, I had then sort of understood various aspects of it and um, wanted to also, uh, you know, as with any PhD, uh, link it to, to existing theory. And, uh, you know, I, I needed, as you will know, um, because uh, you helped help me with that, <laughs> Um I, I then started to uh, look around kind of political sciences a bit more and, you know, automobility, of course, that sits in sociology as well. Um, so in, in the political sciences um, uh, and, and sociology, I mean, there, there's one um, theory that's called uh, the post-political theory. And, uh, you know, that, that just uh, suddenly reading through that uh, became absolutely clear that in, in Newcastle, we are dealing with post-political concepts, namely that the, the politics have sort of receded, um, you know, from, from the public arena. And that it's, it's more and more difficult for the public 
or for groups and individuals to make their voices heard, as well as more difficult you know, for the um, political technical uh, system, so you know, the, the council, for example, to actually link back in, into the public arena. And by public arena, I just you know, mean um, you know, so sort of a concept of where people can come together and talk and devise plans for the future, um, you know, talk about change, new ideas, and um, how, how, what, what it could look like um, and how, could, how change could be brought about. Whereas in Bremen, I couldn't really see the post-political aspects. There was a public arena, but um, also automobility happened there. Also through, and that's another aspect, um, you know, or, or another finding, also through um, an old style of cycle campaigning as well, which was, I'm a cyclist, um, I don't need any special space, I'm fast enough, I can cycle amongst cars. Um, the vehicular cyclists, um, which always meant um, that, and I was present in, in Bremen, you know, that um, vehicular cycling attitude amongst campaigners always meant that if that um, nothing needs to change but just you know a change in attitude then um, it was very difficult um, to to politicize that and uh, you know to to make that into a political demand because I mean we'd seen in, in Newcastle and in the UK that over all those years we had all sorts of you know liberal campaigns of uh, you know, get your bike out of your shed, you know, start to cycle. Um, it's about you, you, you. It's about you. You have to change. And um, and we've seen that, that, you know, for the for the decades, it doesn't, didn't, hasn't made a difference in um, in, in the upkeep um, of, of cycling. In, in fact, you know, it's just stuck around the kind of the 2% or Newcastle 1% um, of trips cycled. So... But in Bremen, um, the public arena was relatively intact. You know, there, there were there were ways and um, means and places and you know communications, debates, discussions happening. It was just that the kind of the technocratic process of uh, yeah, we don't need to do anything at all. The space is fine. Um, there doesn't need to be any engineering feat here. Any um, you know spatial redesign. Had uh, had you know, yielded the same results, which um, which was the system that we've got is fine. Nothing needs to change. Now, I mean, you know, in, in Bremen you do have your cycleways and people do cycle there, but I was still there and talking to activists, and they felt in the shadow of automobility again. You know, they felt not heard, not understood, um, sidelined, uh, excluded. And, you know, they had this um, thing about them, uh, you know, I'm just a cyclist, no one listens. And I found that absolutely bizarre coming from the UK context, where, you know, we really do know what it feels like to be marginalized, not just as a cyclist trying to enact the cycling thing, but as a campaigner as well, you know, being marginalized in, in the demands for more space, building cycleways. Um, you know, or the latest thing now, you know, protected um, cycleways, uh, temporary ones um, uh, are springing up all over the place. And um, so, you know, it was interesting to see these parallels 
between Newcastle and, and Bremen, but then also, you know, the, the absolute and utter differences that existed. But in the end, having a similar result for activism, which was, ah, this is why we are stuck here. Um, and uh, yeah, for, you know, for the hopes um, that I've got, I mean, Bremen can change that relatively quickly if, if they still have a, you know, socio-political arena. In, in which you can debate, in which you can, you know, you can fill in information there, and it, it can be, um, it, it can be discussed, and it's it's not just you know kind of pushed aside and um, you know forgotten about. Uh, then great, I think Bremen has, um, I mean, not just cycling happen there anyways, but you know then then it can build on that, and you know maybe come up to. Dutch levels of cycling because I mean there is um, there is ways to go for Bremen and that's up as well you know <laughs> and then yeah in Newcastle it is um, it will be extraordinarily difficult because if you've got a, a, a very close or even non-existent public and political arena where the politics have um, have shut themselves away, and you know they've 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 kind of they they are not on this conglomerate with um, with the technical, you know, with the officers. Then um, it's it's going to be really hard to bring about change there. But again, in in Newcastle, it was interesting. I talked to the officer, and um, that person um, was actually that person wanted change, and um, you know had ideas about it, and. That person, that officer, found it difficult to initiate change because ultimately it um, the missing public arena. So you know, if, if you have to, you know, if, if you want a starting point, Newcastle has to um, put a lot of time and effort into reconnecting and opening up that space again. Uh, learn to, in many ways, learn to listen and uh, learn to understand. Um, differences and that through differences, you know, the learning process works. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much, Katia. There's loads more we could talk about about your research and your thesis, but hopefully this short conversation has given people an idea about the amazing methods that you use, how you combine them, some of your findings and the PhD process. So really just, is there anything else that you would like to add that we haven't covered? Well, um, you know, any PhD, um, and, you know, in particular because, you know, mine is kind of an autoethnographic one, it always sounds, oh, yeah, I know, there's just this one person doing it. Far from it. Um, you know, for, for me, it was an absolute journey, which, I, you know, a, a, a real jungle, you know, that I had to kind of slash my, my, my way through. Um, and I was given the tools by other people, you know, and, and given the confidence by other people um, to do it, to persist with it, um, to to give certain directions. So, you know, without without um, my supervisors, uh, I should probably briefly also say, you know, this was Northumbria University. Uh, it was done on a on a student grant, um, studentship. Uh, absolutely amazing what they allowed me to do in that time absolutely amazing that I was allowed to combine it with personal aspects, but then also um, to travel around, you know, I spent lots of time, as you can imagine, in, in Germany, living there, you know, living the transport system in Bremen, living the campaigning life in, in Bremen as well. And, um, but then also absolutely 
um, I, I, I don't know, you know, I can't express the gratitude to these eight women activists, you know, who got together with me, spending a lot of time, uh, you know, sometimes up to three hours to, to sit down and, um, you know, get on record uh, what their campaigning journey was, you know, how they got into it, what was important to them. And, um, yeah, and yeah, of course, thanks, as, as you can imagine, to, to the decision makers as well. Um, it's just, you know, a, a PhD is, is not just a, a one-person uh, feat and activity. It's it's a real project, you know, that um, needs real people. <laughs> it does need the one PhD researcher, the candidate, to put it to pull it together and put it together in the end. And of course, that is my product. Uh, and uh, you know, if, if anyone doesn't find themselves in there in in the PhD, then yeah, it is my product in the end. And you know, and my. Um, you know, my understanding of, uh, you know, what people said and their themes in, um, in, in what we were all saying. And, um, you know, and then a, a complete mixing together with, with all these different um, data streams. But, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a humbling journey. It's an absolute, um, I would always do it again, weirdly enough. I, um, I, it was as scary as it was exciting um i can uh, only say that uh, you know if if you if you're interested in phd um look at uh, and, and you're interested in you know bringing yourself into the phd as well it can be done uh, and it's not always easy uh to to find the right supervisors for example for it um and uh yeah it's uh, it's such a it, it it was a mega project and it felt um exhilarating and deflating at the same time when i finished it it's you know there, there was always these polar tension points um throughout the phd and you know you live in this kind of gray zone and these kind of polar tensions and uh, it's um and and once it's finished it's uh it's kind of done, but in your head, I think a PhD never finishes because it kicks kicks off so many new things, so many new thoughts, you know, so many new people you've met through it, um, and possibilities for the future. It's uh, it's amazing. Brilliant. Well, thanks again, Katya. And if you want to find out more about Katya's work, I'll just direct you to her website where there are links to peer reviewed papers and that full thesis and various other blog posts, um, debates and so on. So it's katsdecker.wordpress.com. And that's K-A-T-S-D-E-K-K-E-R, katsdecker.wordpress.com. Brilliant. Thanks again. I'm Rachel Aldred and I'm really pleased to be talking to Dr Emma Mbarbazi for the Active Travel podcast today. Emma completed her PhD research at Harriet Watt University on the impacts of travel scripts on commuting behaviour. She's now a research fellow at the Uganda National Roads Authority, but I'm going to talk to her about her PhD research. One of the things I found really interesting about it was that it takes a social science approach to commuting behaviour, 
using this concept of travel scripts. And I was intrigued to find out that, Emma, you've got a background in construction management with an incredibly high grade for your undergrad degree, and then you've ended up doing a social psychology PhD. So how was it to move from a BSc in construction management to a very qualitative social science thesis? I'm really glad to be here, Rachel. And yes, you are right. Um, I do come from a more, uh, what can I, I, I wouldn't say technical background, but yeah, construction management background. And it's really when I did my master's at Harriet Watts, I did a master's in urban and regional planning, um, that I, I, I got exposed to these social psychological issues. And I found them really interesting because as people, we are interesting. It's never a matter in transport, for example, it's never a matter of let's build it and they will come. It's never that. And it's always about the people and, and what are they thinking and what will they do when they have this thing? So I, I found that really interesting. And, and I think that's uh, that's something we all have to consider as policymakers, as researchers. I think it's really important for us to try and understand that and see how we can help each other um, do the right thing in whatever circumstances we're in. So that's why I, I went with that. I was just really interested in that. And uh, it was a challenge because it was new to me, but I, I liked it. Yeah. Amazing. No, I, I agree. My background is sociology myself. So I'm always really interested in qualitative methods in transport. And um, you, so you're investigating your, your full PhD title was um, the travel script, exploring the construction and engagement of a mental structure as the link between the influence of situational and social psychological factors in commuting decisions along a life course. So like that's looking at this concept of travel scripts. Could you explain for people who are listening what a travel script is? Right. So we as people, we, we form um, re mental representations about the things around us. And they could be just mental representations to help us categorize things. So, um, so we have what we, they call uh, schemas. Um, so like a stereotype. That's a schema. You, you're categorizing something. But a travel script is more a mental representation of uh, the things around us, of the things that we know uh, through time, because um, the script is looking at engaging in a particular action or a particular behavior um, over and over again, but based on what we know. And the more we engage in it, the more we inform what we know about it. Um, and so that's really what a travel script is. It's a mental representation um, of the things we know uh, about how we travel, about uh, where we want to travel and, and what constrains or enables that. And, and so how are we going to put that mental representation into practice? And that's also, it's, that's, how, that's why it has to be both the construction and the engagement because I mean, the mental representation is there but we only see it as 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 a person engages a particular behavior or a particular action. So, sure. So maybe I guess if I were a habitual car user, part of my um, travel script might be: oh, buses are slow. They t they they go around the houses. They you know I can't get a bus where I need to go, and that's shaping my behavior. Exactly, something like that. Um, it might be. I, I just as you said what you think about the buses, but also what you think about the car and, and what you like about it uh, and what it does for you and, and what it helps you to do and the things you want to do uh, in your life that 
the, the car enables that you think the bus or the bicycle uh, will not do for you in the way you want it to. So, mm. so I, I, and I was um, just skimming through the thesis this morning, and one of the things that I kind of like about it is the the hassle, the the, the focus on hassle, and the, the the fact that in a lot of ways when we travel, we, we you know we're not trying to um, get good stuff. Sometimes we're trying to avoid hassle and we're trying to minimize the amount of effort and annoyance. <laughs> yes, uh, that I found that really interesting. And it came about really early on uh, uh, when I started interviewing people. A lot of people did talk about the hassle, um, but we deal with hassle in, in different ways. As you said, sometimes it's not that we, we travel because we want this we all want to travel in this high-end Mercedes or, or whatever. It's just we travel because we want, sometimes we want to avoid uh, something. Yeah. So, but we deal with the hassle in different ways. Sometimes the hassle is about the things in our environment. So some people think uh, buses are crowded and when the windows are closed, it's all foggy and dirty or things like that. Um, while other people, when they travel on public transport, they'll think, oh, I, I don't have to think about the road and I don't have to think about um, looking at the mirrors and all that and I can sit down and read a book. So people look at hustle in, in different ways and all that uh, comes from something else that we've experienced or people close to us have experienced that we take on into our mental structures. Mm. That's so fascinating. So you, I'm imagining you could have two people sat next to each other on the bus and having completely different experiences. One is um, really annoyed about the crowding and thinking it's foggy. The other person is thinking, oh, this is time for me. I think one of your interviewees said stolen time, that they get that time back for themselves on the bus. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So just um, just take it back to, to what you did and, and um, sort of starting the thesis. You um, so you you interviewed um, 82 commuters. That's quite a lot, isn't it? That's an awful lot of data. Um, how did you choose them? How, where did they come from? Right. Uh, these were people commuting to the Harriet Watt uh, University campus in Edinburgh. So the campus is made of uh, is made up of the university and then there are other uh, businesses and organizations that are situated at that campus. I was lucky that I, at the time I was doing my uh, my dissertation, my, my research, there was a, a, tra a, a, um, a survey already by, um, what is it called? I've forgotten what it's called. There was a program on sustainable transition. Tra transition Harriet Watt, yes, thank you. There was a survey from Transition Harriet Watt and a general study about how people come uh, to 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 work. And I just requested uh, people, I, I requested the person that was running that if I could have just a, a question of people who wanted to be contacted for my research. And, and so that's, that's how I got people responding that, yes, I would like to be contacted. And when they brought back those um, those contacts, uh, I later contacted them. Of course, I had a process of uh, whittling it down with particular criterion. Um, but once I had them, I, I just started sending out emails. And really, I was, I was so glad that a lot of people responded. That's how I ended up with so many, uh, such a large number for a qualitative study. I, I realized that. But I think, I think with the way the research went, it was important for me to have those large numbers because then they helped me in the end to to form those personas 
I, um, that I created with my research just to look at people with the same characteristics and try to see um, what persona could that take and when they were born and what life events might have influenced them. So that's, that's actually how I ended up with uh, such a, a large number for a qualitative study. Mm. And the, the approach you took as well, you weren't just um, asking people what they think of the bus. You were taking this mobility biographies approach, weren't you? Could you say a little bit more about how that works? Right. So I was looking at uh, the construction of a, a travel script along somebody's life course. And mobility biography um, looks at uh, the stability or the changes in, in the way in travel, in someone's travel behavior over time. And so I was looking at things in somebody's um, life uh, and how they've experienced them and how that might have influenced the way they commute today. And I actually found that because I, I, I simply asked somebody, so please tell me how you have traveled um, since you were a child. So, you know, they just told me a bit of their life story when I was at kindergarten and, you know, my parents took me to school. And, but later I, I asked people to start really from the time they went to university to further education, whether it was university or college or something like that. And because that's the time we start to make the decisions, our own travel decisions. And I thought, you know, let me start here because there's really a lot of data before. And so different, I found that different things on a person's mobility biography. So the mobility biography is also influenced by other biographies. So you have like household biographies and that's how you changes in your life maybe starting a family or marrying or something, moving in with a partner um, or employment biographies. So that's changes in your work or education, things like that. And your residential biographies, of course, changes in homes. So all that will affect your travel behavior over time. So I had to put all that um, in mind and, and try to see at different points in people's lives, how they traveled or how their travel changed and if it's been sustained, when did that start? And how long has it been sustained? And then I would know that at least the person, if it's sustained, say, maybe for five years, somebody will know this is when I started using the car. And they'll kind of think back to the situation around that time that made them change to the car or to the bus or start cycling. And I would I'd then start to see a certain mental structure that's being that has been built up to that point and is being enabled for for that time and being sustained for that time so that's why i took the mobility biography that's why mobility biography was was important to me just to see the changes in in travel behavior and then whether it's sustained and why it's sustained And one of your important turning points, I think, was around having children. You specifically looked for interviewees. I don't think they didn't all have children, but most of them did, I think. Yes, I specifically looked for uh, interviewees that had children because uh, from the literature, that seemed to be quite a, a big thing. And also from my pilot interviews, when I spoke to the people that had children, there seemed to be some really interesting things to 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 look at there. Of course, I had to look at people that did not so that I could compare. Um, but yes, this turned out to be quite an important um, turning point for a lot of people um, because uh, it created quite a number of constraints, uh, even when people's locations or, or people or there was infrastructure for cycling and buses. 
and was good enough. And they themselves said it was good enough, but um, just having to make so many trips regarding their children as well as their work um, just changed the way people uh, viewed that. But for some people, you find that when those constraints were removed, so when the children were not so little and could do things for themselves, could walk to school by themselves, for some people, I mean, they moved back to the public transport that they, they liked. Uh, for others, it was like, oh, well, I'm already here and this is good and I like being in my car and and I'll continue with that. And I found that, you know, I found that 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 distinction between the two, the two kinds of people interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you a bit more about that as well, because you say that um, there's the car default people and there's the alt default people. Um, so could you tell me a bit more about those that distinction and what that meant? Right. So in my research, I, I categorized uh, people who were commuting by car at the time. So I did I did these interviews in uh 2014-2015. So I categorized people who are commuting at that time. So let's say currently, but currently of 2014-15, um, by car. And then people who are commuting by alternative modes, which was the bus or walking or, or cycling as the other people. And so I, I would look at, so I would say your travel script at the moment is is pushing you towards, or the way you're engaging it is towards commuting with a car. Let's go backwards. Or at least that's how I was analyzing the data, although that's not how they told it. Let's go backwards and see how you got to the car. And then for the people with alternative modes, which I called auth default, um, so their default mode at the moment was to travel by bus or by bicycle. Um, it's so your travel script at the moment is you're engaging it uh, and it's ha having you commute by car by by bus sorry or by bicycle. Let's try to move backwards in your life course and see how you got to that point. So that's how I got um, the car defaults. That's the people commuting by car currently for most days of the week, and then the alt defaults. That's the people commuting by bicycle or by bus or walking to to the Heriot Watt campus. Um, at the time I did the interviews, there were there was another I mean um, categorization of the car default and all default. So I, I divided the interviewees into cohorts, and my cohorts were looking at. Um, so there was a 1970s and 1980s and a 1990s cohort. This is not when the people were born. It is actually I was looking at when the people turned about 17 because I know that's about the age that most people in Britain can um, get a driver's license. And that's a big thing for someone to start driving, obviously. So that's that's how the cohorts were. So the people who turned about 17 in, 19, in the 1980s and the people who turned about 17 in the 1970s and then the people who turned about 17 in the 1990s. And, and just to follow that through, um, whether they, they decided to get the car then and continue with it and, and the different constraints and when that constraint was removed, say, for example, most people at, at the time they were in at uni or tertiary uh, education. Uh, I mean, you're skint, you don't have money. So you and, and probably you live close to where you study anyway. So you walk or you cycle, or you go by bus. Um, and then when you get a bit more money and you start working, uh, I found a number of people then decided to get cars because that enabled them to get to where they were going, but others did not. 
uh, because maybe where they started working, they did not require a car. But then they formed that habit of going by bus and they liked it. And, and then they started choosing where to work or where to live in such a way that they wouldn't have to use the car, something like that. So those were the different categories within my research that helped me to, to sort of um, interrogate the different narratives I was getting from people's life courses. And that's quite an interesting part of the thesis as well, the way in which people, yeah, they've established that behaviour and then they talk about looking for a house or a flat in a particular area. Um, well, one thing I was going to ask you about, actually, is the um, Harriet Watt is a campus university. So it's on the outskirts of Edinburgh. And I think you mentioned it moved from the city centre. Was that important for people, the fact that it moved and it was no longer a central location? It was on the outskirts. Yes. for uh, I met a few people who were with Harriet Watt at the time. Uh, it was in the city centre, and then it moved to the outskirts. And actually, I remember one of them, you know, said, "We are at the time it was in the city centre. He was fine. He would walk. It was okay." And once they moved out, he just decided to start using his car because, well, the parking was free at the time. It was still free at the time I was there, anyway. Um, and the buses took long, the person was just not used to using buses walking, the person was fine cycling, the person was fine, um, but cycling that far on the road was not something that the person was used to and, and the easiest thing for him at the time was, let me get into my car and get to, yeah, so the location of where you're going really matters and and then, then the habits, the, the the sort of the, you were talking about how people start using a mode and they sort of get used to it, and that becomes part of their becomes part of their identity. And so, once that person has used a car for a while, then are they likely to carry on doing so? Yes, um, there is a, a lot, uh, quite a bit of literature about travel identities. So people do form these travel identities. Um, and the more you do something, the more you, you feel, yes, I am the sort of person that does this, so this is me. Um, so yes, um, habits are important. And when people started using the car and it became the easier thing for them, and then they started to look at themselves as the sort of people that use cars and that's, that's okay. Um, so they continued with it. I did find a few people who um, they, they are, the identity as somebody who is very much involved in environmental issues sort of overrode uh, okay, or influenced their travel identity a lot more than just the way they travel. So even when they faced, um, let's say, really long commutes or uh, a bus commute where they, they need to change buses and things like that, um, they were they had already um, told themselves. Let me use that that phrase. They had already told themselves, "I'm not the I'm not the sort of person who travels by car." Let's say, and so I'm going to do whatever I can to to travel in in what I think is a sustainable way, and that's how I also came up with the 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 different group of um, the habit. The habit helps us um, sort of reduces the mental effort that we have to go through in making a decision, yeah? Because we've done it before, so it's, it, it's quick. Um, so, but other people had to 
sort of dig deeper in my research. I call it an extra little thing in the system. So it's the, 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 they would not just go for um, what is the easier. As I mean, as human beings, it, it's it's normal. We go for what's easier to what what will be the easiest decision to make. So, but there were those people who, even where they they looked at the situation and the situation was not that um, not that enabling. They put things in their either in their minds or in their space to help them travel in the way they wanted to travel. And most of, most of those people had identities that influenced more their travel identity than just the way they travel. So for example, if they have certain strong environmental, um, environmental thoughts uh, um, about how your carbon footprint and, and what you're doing for the environment and, and, and things to do with um, fuel and, and petroleum industry or things like that and so they uh, they would they would choose to either use buses or cycle even when say i mean it rains a lot in scotland even when it's raining and i, re I remember one of them told me it's it's not about it's not about the weather it's about how you're dressed so it's it's these little things that they they, they either tell themselves or we tell ourselves, it's really to make ourselves comfortable with what we are doing. I mean, the car default people are comfortable, but also the old default people are very comfortable with what they are doing, even though somebody on the outside might look at them and say, oh, what a hassle. I have to change buses. I have to take two buses and take like a one hour commute to work. For somebody else, it would be a no-no, but for them, it's, it's okay. I will do this. And once I get on the bus, I'll be able to listen to this program or I'll be able to read this book. And yeah, so it's. And, and you talked about how as well um, for some of the people who use the car, but they have environmental identities, they would try and sort of manage that. And one of them, I think, was talking about, you know, he felt bad about it. but He bought a lower emissions car. So there's some people who sort of manage the car using identity in that way. Yes. Um, so uh, as I said, people, they, they cope in different ways when we all try to make ourselves comfortable with, mm. with whatever decision we make, really, which mm. is what we should do, because if we're not, then <laughs> I don't know how we'll go around. But yes. So those <laughs> who felt they had no, no other choice but to use the car, but had strong um, environmental beliefs, um, said it's worth it mm. to spend more in a more fuel efficient car or a hybrid car and that's what they would do to make themselves mm -hmm. uh, more comfortable with commuting by car and and this was not in, mm -hmm. in any way in in contradiction with their environmental beliefs because the, what they were trying to do is to find a compromise really of of um, traveling by car which they know all all the issues around it all the environmental issues around it but also their strong environmental beliefs and so in trying to find a compromise, mm. they, they they thought that you know to spend more on on, on a hybrid or a more fuel efficient car is is how is how mm. they'll go about it. Yeah. Or presumably, potentially, you could redefine yourself as being less environmental. That that instead, it's the convenience and the speed that matters to you. For instance, it's interesting <laughs> that you mentioned that. I I did not I did not meet that actually. Now that you talk about it, people did not try to change what they thought they were. 
but they try to change um, or their their perception of that behavior to fit in what they thought they were. So it actually did not it not it did not go the other way around. No, it was I'm behaving like this, but but this is not in contradiction with what I believe. Or if it is, this is what I am going to do. It was never, or maybe I don't believe that. And I know that there are theories that say um, that the way you behave tells you. But I think maybe because I used retrospective interviews, um, they had already gone through that, maybe subconsciously, that they were not going to think about who they were when they are talking about something they've done over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a coherent picture of who they are now. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, but presumably only a minority of people were kind of had strong environmental identities. So for the others, what was what was it about instead? So the others, it's really the situation around that helped to help them to form certain habits. Um, so I remember clearly one one interviewee who who talked about the fact that they wanted to teach their children certain things. Um, so to the, their children, they didn't want their children to to be so used to the car. Uh, so even in the rain, they would help their children put on all the the gear and the raincoats and the boots and all that, and just go out with them if they were, had to walk to 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 school. Um, but the situation helped. So the people who lived near uh, psychopaths. Um, or the people who lived near bus stops or uh, a bus stop, especially that was just uh, without a, a change, um, that came out very clearly that the, the the situation around them, the infrastructure around them, when it is there, it helps to form the habit. And once the habit is formed, um, even when they moved or when they are moving, they try to to stick to say a person um I, I met this young girl she she did not like young lady let me not say younger she she did not have children and she'd moved from England um to Edinburgh and she said when she was in England she used to drive just because uh, once she left university she got a car she borrowed her mother's car first and then she got her own car and she used to go to work that way but when she moved to Edinburgh the first flat that she got was in the city and there was a direct bus to Harriet Watt where she was walking. And so she just, she didn't see any reason for her to use the car then. So she, she, she's been, she, at the time she'd been using buses and when she, even when she moved flats, flats, she was looking for a place. See the habit had now started to form so that when she moved flats, she was looking for a place that will enable her to do that, to still travel to work by bus. So um, the infrastructure is, is certainly important. And I think that's why I looked at both the situational factors, we cannot do away with them, and also the, the social psychological factors, which is really us. Sure. And if if we were thinking of trying to get people out of their cars, particularly people who don't particularly have strong environmental views, would it be about the infrastructure then, do you think? To start with, to start with, it would be about the, the infrastructure and I think designing programs that ask them to do just something small. 
it's not, I mean, it's daunting for someone to think I have been traveling by car for all these years. And yes, I understand all the environmental issues around, but can I really start traveling by bus for every day, five days of the week? Um, so that's, that can be a bit daunting. Um, so I think it would be important to start with smaller programs where we, maybe a workplace says, uh, Monday is, is the public transport day or something like that. Um, just something small. Uh, so then when they can start with that small thing, they, they then can move in. Um, I think Daryl Bem, uh, calls it a foot in the door. When someone has done something small or um, behaved in a certain way, but on a very small scale, they can start to build it up. And I actually did meet people who who said, yeah, they 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 started by traveling one day a week. By they they tried their cycle commute one day a week, and the rest of the the time they would they would um, they would go by by their cars, and then they worked it up to two. At the time I spoke to them, uh, they were just doing two days a week. But really, that is those are people who who again they they want to what can i say they want to be in line with their own with their beliefs with with, with the thing that has touched them with um but at the same time you cannot make such a huge change so the situation of actor the infrastructure is really important to help somebody because if it's not there so if your psychopath is not there or the road is not marked in such a way that the cyclist feels safe or the 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 rules on the road are not in such a way that the cyclist feels safe then even the small even the small thing that you're asking them to start with will be very hard for them to do because they will feel unsafe and and we mentioned already about sort of infrastructure like bus stops and cycle paths but were there things that you found that you thought the university was doing or should be doing to support people to travel more sustainably um well it wouldn't it would have to be the university working together with with the council i mean at the time i was there uh, I, I i used the bus a lot in edinburgh and i felt the bus was quite good i don't know if it was just coming from uganda and comparing it to a public transport system but um but uh and then i actually learned to cycle when i was in I was doing my PhD. I learned to cycle in 2015 um, with someone through Transition here at Water. They were offering um, free classes. And, and cycling around the university was fine. Cycling outside of the campus was not, was not the, I mean, we were okay because we were with our instructor and, and so we thought we'd be okay with her, but I, I don't think I would do it on my own. Um, at the time I was in Edinburgh, so that was about three years ago, there were no uh, dedicated cycle lanes, and the, the 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 bicycles had to go on the bus lanes, which was okay because that's the space they had. Um, but yeah, it, it was not ideal. It, it's not something that would enable somebody who's who wants to get into that to do it. The people who do it are the people who are already uh, proficient cyclists, and there are a number, but. Um, it's not the easiest thing to do. So I think dedicated psychopaths would help, but I don't know how how much, how far the Edinburgh Council, the university itself would be willing to, to go to do that. I was just going to um, ask really sort of coming to the end of the podcast, um, what's, um, 
if there was um if there was anything that you wanted to add, if there was anything that particularly surprised you or you found particularly interesting about the, the PhD research? Well, for me, is in general, you know, from the, at the beginning when you said it was a jump from my construction background to the social psychology, uh, for me, so everything was, it's not that I had not heard of these concepts, it's just dealing with them myself <laughs> was different, but um that that's what was interesting about it uh, and then going out to talk to people and actually finding that you can trace these different concepts that you're reading in the literature things to do with uh mobility biographies or things to do with people's feelings about about these things these are real things i i know they can sound abstract to somebody coming from that background but these are actually real things we don't see them but they are real and they actually affect the way we 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 use things or the way we behave um and they in just the same way as as building a road or putting together a a, a good fleet of public transport or some they, they really have the same weight and and they will affect behavior in, in the same not in the same way but with the magnitude with a similar magnitude with a similar impact that that those other situational factors will and for me it was interesting to to actually trace that in what people were saying and and I actually did not prompt them because all I told them was tell me how you have traveled since this and I, I did I, it's only after they told me their story that I then went back and I think it is important for us I know that in Europe and in the UK you already uh, clued onto these things and and I, I just hope that back here like in Uganda people know them it's just um, the, the policy will is is not yet there for for us to to, re, to to do research and then start implementing such things. So although I did my research in Edinburgh, um, I'm always, my ears and eyes are always open for how that could be um, done uh, back home here in Uganda. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, so that, yeah, that was really interesting. I really appreciated the chance to learn more about your research. And it's it's a great case for you know, qualitative social science research in transport. So um, and if people want um, to read your thesis, they can find it via the British Library Ethos Service. And I'll include a link to that on the Web page and also to your LinkedIn page where you've got articles that you've written and so on. So, um, yeah, thank you very much, Emma.